Welcome again for the fourth or fifth time. Uh, we're glad you're here with us this morning to uh, worship with us at Branch of Hope. My name is Jason Gallagher. I'm one of the elders here. And it's an honor and privilege to be with you, um, those here in person and those of us online as well. Uh, the topic I've chosen to exhort on this morning is the glorious and terrible and dominical doctrine of hell. And I mean terrible in the true sense of that word. And uh, the topic, or the title is A Hot Topic Gone Cold, A Survey of the Doctrine of Hell. And different people have asked me over the past several weeks, you know, what I was planning to exhort on. And I would say, oh, I'm thinking about, you know, the doctrine of hell. And uh, I think we're a very unique group here. And I got a lot of encouraging words. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you. People were like, "Uh, that's awesome. That's so cool. I can't wait to hear it. Or maybe that's exactly what we need to hear. Uh, One person said... uh, you know, the more, I, the more I learn and understand uh, what, we, what we think and believe about hell really impacts so much of our theology, right? And um, so we're going to unpack that a bit this morning. And uh, first and foremost, you know, I hope and pray that this exhortation would bring honor and glory to the Lord um, and that it would serve as a means of edification and sanctification for those of us who profess faith in Christ Uh, But if there's anyone here this morning who does not profess faith in Christ, my prayer is that you would listen to what the scriptures have to say about hell, that you would consider it with sobriety, with honesty, and that you would understand what Christ has done, what God has done in Christ by his spirit to provide a way of salvation uh, for all who call upon his name. So before we get too much further, uh, let us turn our attention to the word of God, specifically the words of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, from Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. So hear now the word of the Lord. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, for gathering us here this day. I pray that as we open your word and study this doctrine, that you would glorify your name. You would remind us of the great mercy you have shown us in Christ, your kindness, your love, your grace. May you also reveal to us your holiness, your righteousness, your justice, and your goodness. May we behold you, Lord, as you truly are, as we consider these truths. And Father, may you use your word by your spirit to instruct us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness that we would be prepared for every good work that you have prepared for us to do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we approach this doctrine, I wanted to give you guys a bit of a framework kind of for where we'll be headed. And there's kind of three overarching categories that I'll be addressing Uh, First, I want to look at the importance of proclaiming this doctrine, like why is it necessary? And then we will look at what exactly is it that we proclaim, knowing the biblical doctrine and aspects. And finally, the practice of proclaiming this doctrine, 
Right? How do we communicate this to a world around us with grace and with truth? And so that's kind of the Google map overview. Um, it says it's about 35 minutes if there's no traffic, so we'll see how that goes. Um, I forgot a water. Can someone grab me a, a water? If you... um, so for those of you new to our church or just visiting, once a month we usually visit a hot topic sermon. And now the idea of a hot topic is that there's some injustice, there's some immorality, there's some rebellion against the word of God, right, that we come into contact with on a regular basis in our culture. We need to know what God's word says about that, and we need to to know how we might go about exposing the evil and redeeming the time with grace and with truth. And it occurred to me that part of our goal as a church, right, really as the people of God on this earth, is to eliminate the need altogether for these hot topic sermons. Right? As I thought back on some of the recent hot topics, we've covered LGBTQ, abortion, euthanasia, and others. And I thought that if we lived in a culture, thank you, in which the biblical doctrine of hell was expounded upon and proclaimed and heralded along some of the other more common topics in Scripture, I believe our culture would be in a very different place. In other words, when the doctrine of hell is neglected, the impact that it has on the world around us is not neutral. It's actually negative. And so let us look at our passage from Mark 9 kind of as a springboard to unpack this doctrine to understand how we go about communicating this eternally important truth to the world around us. So this passage comes shortly after the transfiguration of Christ and after Jesus speaks to his disciples about his upcoming death and resurrection. And in the passage, he really speaks to the urgency of entering into God's kingdom, right, of entering into life, and the importance of killing the sin which has the power to lead us to eternal damnation. And so first, it's important to note that Jesus is not endorsing bodily mutilation, the chopping off of limbs, the cutting off of hands, because we know that sin originates in our heart, right? Just as something we eat cannot make us unclean, right? Chopping off a hand is not going to keep us from sin, right? We can certainly set up boundaries. We can set up physical systems, to help keep us from being tempted, but sin is a matter of the heart and it's a matter of the mind. By the time we sin outwardly, it's because we've already sinned in our heart and in our mind. Jesus is also teaching us that sin needs to be dealt with radically, right? And we need to have a sober understanding of sin's terrible end. An analogy is that like sin is like a cancer, right? And we need to be swift in cutting it out of our lives. We need to be radical in its removal. Jesus mentions our hands, our feet, and our eyes. And I've heard different sermons over the years, and I think from a top level something helpful here is to consider those aspects of our bodies. Our hands are those things that we're engaged in very directly, very intimately, on a regular basis. And if those things are sinful in and of themselves, we need to abandon them. Our feet can be seen as that which bring us various places, and we should be mindful of those places that we go. Like Joseph, who was tempted by Potiphar's wife, he ran like the wind, away from temptation. He even left his, his cloak behind. Right? His feet carried him far away because he knew he couldn't stay where he was without being tempted to sin. And so let us be radical in running from sin. And our eyes, well, they look upon all that is around us, right? And we should be ever mindful of those things which we set our eyes upon, We are bombarded today with a world full of all types of images and videos and shorts and this and that, right? From TikTok to Snapchat to YouTube to Facebook to Instagram 
and then there's television, and then there's billboards and magazines, and there's the whole rest of the internet. And there's our own camera roll, right? Us taking pictures of ourselves and posting them places. And we need to think about all of those things because one unwholesome image has the ability to lead us into a world of sin. And Jesus is saying, cover those eyes, guard those eyes, because that one glance has the ability to lead you away to a place of eternal torment. And so three times in this short passage, Jesus tells us that if your hands or eyes or feet are leading you to a place of sin, that the end of that sin is to be, quote, cast into hell where the fire will never be quenched. And that is sobering, and it is not something that we should desire for ourselves or for anyone. I don't care who they are or how much we might disagree with their politics or their worldview. Ezekiel 33 teaches us that God himself takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and so neither should we. And so if we find ourselves toying and playing with sin looking at things that are sinful, going to places that are sinful, engaging in sinful activities, let us take heed of this warning that it is better to enter life maimed than to love and live in sin and to be cast into hell where the fire will never be quenched. So Jesus is speaking here to something fearful, right? This idea of being cast into unquenchable fire to wake people up from their slumber and their love for sin. He is using a principle taught in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 16.6 tells us this. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. And this is actually quite a profound passage in that it relates to this topic. Um, You have the atonement of sins placed right next to the fear of the Lord and the turning away from evil. And it says that the atonement for iniquity or sin is by love and faithfulness. And so whose love and faithfulness atones for sin? Right? It is God's. Right? It is the love of God expressed in Christ. And then right next to that, it talks about how the fear of God drives men away from evil. So we have this loving God who saves us from sin, and it is this same loving God that also drives us away from evil, the fear of that loving God, right? And so it is the fear of the Lord. If that was in the hearts and minds of the people around us, rather than mass shootings and mass lootings, they would be running away from evil. They would be driven away from it if the fear of the Lord was before their eyes. And so why should we fear God, right? This loving God who atones for iniquity. Well, when it comes to the reason why men should fear God, Jesus again gives us perhaps the clearest and most concise answer. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so the heart of the reason why men should fear God is because he has the power to destroy our body and soul in hell. Men will not let go of their beloved sins unless the fear of the Lord truly grips their sin-loving hearts. And so a true fear of the God who can send us to hell for eternity, to fear him, is actually the healthiest and most life-giving fear one could ever have. And that's the essence of the passage from Mark 9, right? Run from sin and its terrible consequences and run towards Christ for life everlasting 
in the favorable presence of God. And one of my favorite and most respected teachers is Ray Comfort, especially when it comes to reaching the lost and sharing the gospel. And he says this. He says, when the law is not preached, hell seems unreasonable. And he's absolutely correct. God has given us biblical tools to accomplish his purposes of salvation in the world around us. He has given us the law of God, right, the Ten Commandments, using it as a mirror to show men their sin, coupled with the future punishment that all of us, by default, are heading towards. Right? And so together, these truths are the convincing agent that God has chosen to awaken hard, stony hearts. And so in our teaching and in our preaching and in our evangelism, we must proclaim the truth that God, who has the power to cast our souls into hell, will judge the world in righteousness on Judgment Day, and he will judge according to the perfect and righteous standard of his law. But we are in a bit of a quandary, right? Not only has much of the modern church lost what it means to biblically and faithfully proclaim the law of God, right? The doctrine of hell has fallen on particularly hard times in the 20th and 21st centuries. Again, this doctrine, in its neglect, has detrimental impacts on the world around us. And in his book titled The Reformation, A History, Dermaid McCulloch, who is a church historian from Oxford, he's also a professing non-Christian, although he, he says he's a friend of Christianity. He writes this. He says, The founding fathers of the Reformation would be surprised by what is missing from modern Protestantism. During the 20th century, Protestant Christianity quietly ceased to talk about one of the forces which had given it urgency, the fear of hell. And in short, the doctrine of hell has quietly disappeared from American pulpits. Obviously not in totality, but in a very large way, it has disappeared. And when you do hear pastors talk about it, it's often in ignorance. One of the most popular ways you guys have probably heard pastors talk about hell, trying to make it more palatable for people, is that hell is a quote-unquote Christless eternity, or that it is a place of eternal separation from God. And in all honesty, that definition frightens no one who is not a Christian. Yeah. Right? Someone who professes to not believe in God, they don't want to be with God, will not care if they are separated from God for eternity. Right? And it's, it doesn't sound anything like what Jesus says, why we should fear God. And in fact, they might even look forward to separation from God in their ignorance. And so with the neglect of this doctrine and the misunderstanding of it, let us transition to knowing what it is that we proclaim so that we can impart biblical truth uh, to those around us. For instance, regarding the presence of God in hell, um, the truth is that neither evil nor the devil reigns in hell. God reigns in hell, and God is not absent in hell. Revelation 14.10 tells us that the smoke of the torment of those in hell goes up forever and ever before the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And it is important for us to keep in mind that hell is not an evil place. Why? God cannot create an evil place. Hell is actually a good place created by God for the destruction and punishment of evil, and it has a good purpose. And there is a window of time that we have been given while we are alive to repent of our sin and trust in Christ 
in order to avoid this as our eternal destiny. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. None of us are promised tomorrow. And if you are not right with God today, repent of your sin, turn from it, and by faith believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Run to Christ for mercy and forgiveness. And so I'd like to take a look at this biblical doctrine through the lens of the Puritans, right? in particular some of the writings from Christopher Love. And I would commend to you all the work of Joel Beakey and Mark Jones in their book, A Puritan Theology, Doctrine for Life. They dedicate an entire chapter to the glories of heaven and uh, the terrors of hell. And I was thinking about doing the glories of heaven next time I'm up here because you've got to give the bad news before the good news. But uh, in, in this book, um, you know, Christopher Love was a, a Puritan. He was born in 1618. He was a Welsh Presbyterian preacher. He died at the age of 33. He was beheaded for treason against uh, Oliver Cromwell's Commonwealth government. And during his life, Christopher Love wrote some of the most glorious truths about heaven and also some of the most glorious truths about hell. And he wrote about how, on one hand, we don't spend enough time considering how we may attain to the joys of heaven. And on the other hand, we don't spend enough time considering how we may avoid and escape the torments of hell. And so regarding the benefit of expounding this doctrine, Love writes, he says, sermons on, of terror have done more good upon unconverted souls than sermons of comfort have ever done. We cannot claim to preach the whole counsel of God if we run only upon strains of free grace. And so there are five questions that he addresses that we'll look at briefly um, to kind of give us a biblical overview of what it is that we need to be uh, proclaiming or communicating. The questions are, is there a hell? Why must there be a hell? What is hell? Where is hell? And then, is God just in damning men eternally? And so in establishing the fact of hell, Scripture is our authority, right? And Christ is the most frequent teacher on this topic, right? Our Lord uh, expounded this more than any other person in the Scriptures. And so biblically, we know that hell exists because Jesus, the one who created all things, right? We talked about this place was created by God. It was Jesus. He is the creator of all things. He himself tells us that hell exists in multiple places. And so that is our utmost authority, right, when it comes to is, is there a place. In Matthew 23, he says, You snakes, you brood of vipers, speaking to the Pharisees, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Um, at the end of the parable of the talents, the master says, Quote, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash with their teeth. And so Matthew 25, you know, 30 to 46 is, a, is one of the passages actually from our Westminster Confession of Faith. It's one of the proof texts for this doctrine. Um, at the judgment, the king will say to some, quote, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And Jesus says that those condemned, quote, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so note here as well that there is a parallel between these last statements, eternal life and eternal punishment. So uh, this indicates that both of these things will be without end. And so question two, why must there be a hell? First, 
There must be a hell because the holiness and justice of God require that sin be punished. Um, Second, there must be a hell because a sin against an infinitely holy God necessitates a proportionate punishment in the world to come. And then third, there must be a hell because Christ did not satisfy justice, the justice of God, for the wicked. Right? They must, therefore, bear the wrath of God themselves in hell. And this truth here strikes at the doctrine of the atonement. Right? If, we, if we wrongly believe that Christ died for the sins of every last person who was ever born, then it would be unjust for God to send anyone to hell because the penalty for their sins was already paid for by Christ. Right? God would be an unjust judge to punish both his son on the cross as well as the guilty sinner for all eternity for the same set of sins. Right? Either Christ pays for your sins through repentance and faith, or you pay for your sins in, in hell. And that's the, biblical, that's the biblical model. That's the biblical truth. And so regarding the heinousness of sin, Joel Beakey writes, the Puritans commonly held that the heinousness of sin can only be rightly inferred from the cost of redemption, the death of God's beloved son. And so to understand the fact of hell, one really need look no further than the cross and what it cost to redeem us. Right. Third question is, what is it? What is hell? And I want to look at our, one of our church standards here, uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 29. And we don't, we don't need to repeat together, but uh, the question is, what are the punishments of sin in the world to come? The answer is that the punishments of sin in the world to come are everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God. Not the presence of God, the comfortable presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission in hellfire forever. And so this illustrates the historic and concise definition that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment for the wicked. And it is eternal because it is directly related to the infinite and eternal nature of God. Um, and because Christ's suffering for sin was conscious, you know, he wasn't unconscious, uh, he suffered in body and soul, um, so too will be the suffering of those who bear their own sin. It is torment both because of privation, this idea where we are deprived of everything that is good and true and beautiful, all the goodness of God we're deprived of, as well as the outpouring of the fullness of God's divine wrath and hatred towards sin. And so scripture gives us several descriptions uh, which I will read through a summary here uh, with the corresponding scripture references uh, that you guys can go into for individual study. But um, in list form, we have uh, unquenchable fire. We have a furnace of fire, a lake of fire, and eternal fire. Um, outer darkness, the blackness of darkness forever. Chains of darkness, the damnation of hell, the place of torment, the wrath to come, prison, the bottomless pit, the second death, destruction, everlasting punishment, and corruption. And so it, it should be noted here that these graphic images of eternal punishment prompt the question of whether or not these should be taking, taken symbolically or literally. And R.C. Sproul writes, while they seem to be symbols, we must not think of them as merely symbols. Right? We must conclude that the reality is worse than the symbol suggests. 
that Jesus used the most awful symbols imaginable to describe hell is no comfort to those who see them simply as symbols. And in other words, if hell is not a literal lake of fire, the reality of it will actually prove to be far worse. And the fourth question mentioned as we seek to communicate this doctrine is where, where is hell? And uh, Scripture does not give us any exact location of its place. It does give some general distinctions that there is a place of hell that is distinct from and below heaven. Uh, Proverbs 15.24 tells us that the path of life leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. And Luke 10 tells us that, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. And so for the Puritans, the question of the location of hell was nowhere near as important as the fact of hell. And our primary concern in this life is not so much where it is, but that we should take great care to avoid sin, which is the high road, which will lead you straight there. Wherever it is, sin will lead you straight there. And this truth echoes from Mark chapter 9, our opening text, that we should take radical action to avoid sin altogether because it will lead us straight to the place where the fire is never quenched. The fifth question that we'll look at is uh, one of the more existential questions you'll get. When you actually are talking to someone about these truths, uh, the big moral dilemma in people's minds is the time factor, right? Um, the question usually comes across as, how does 30 or 80 or 90 or 100 years of life and sin justify an eternity of punishment? And so again, the infinite holiness of God comes into view here. And that's a backdrop, really, for all of this. And the fact that we sin against an infinite God requires an infinite punishment, right? An analogy I like to use when I'm witnessing the people that seems to make sense with them is consider lying. Consider the sin or the act of lying to someone. You lie to your spouse, you might be sleeping on the couch for a while, right? You lie to your boss at work, you might lose your job. You lie to a police officer, you can be headed for jail. You lie to the president of the United States, depending on the circumstances, you can be headed uh, for a death sentence, right? And so it's the same sin, but the authority of the person that we sin against increases the penalty. It's a very simple um, model to, to explain to someone, and they usually understand that. And so when we sin against an infinitely holy, infinitely authoritative God, regardless of the length of time it took us to commit the sin, uh, a penalty is of infinite duration. And so finally, this third umbrella I want to look at is how do we communicate this to the people around us? Right? How do we share these biblical truths? Um, what should our motive, what should our disposition be? As we seek to proclaim the whole counsel of God right from the rooftops, we must re remember that we are called to be like Christ, right, who is full of grace and truth. Peter exhorts us to have gentleness and meekness and much respect, and Paul exhorts Timothy that we must not strive right, to be gentle, to be patient in meekness. And so we need to be all these things when sharing these truths. We must also speak with grief for the loss of image bearers who go there. This needs to break our heart. Right? We need to meditate upon this doctrine, not only for our own benefit, but for the sake of the lost around us. Like the Apostle Paul, speaking of his fellow countrymen, 
on whom the hardening had come, he said this. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Right? These are not just passing emotions or momentary concerns that Paul has for people that are lost. Right? Paul's basically saying, I wish I could be damned in your place. Right? And the flavor of that, and Paul understood what that means, right? And the flavor of that must be present anytime we speak on this doctrine and whenever we proclaim the gospel. One of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon has always been, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Amen. I'm not sure who said this, but something I heard years ago and always try to keep in mind when I'm sharing the gospel is, if they can't see the tears in your eyes, let them hear the tears in your voice. Right? Dio Moody said, I cannot preach on hell unless I preach with tears. And this is a true and powerful reality. If I'm sharing the gospel with someone speaking of heaven and hell and sin and judgment, something I often say to them is consider my motives. Right? You could have written me off as a fool or a fanatic. I said it, it's worth the risk. I'm not out here asking for money. I'm not getting paid to be out here. I'm not seeking to get you to join my church, although I would welcome that. I've never met you before, but I care about you as a human being, and I want you to know what God has done for sinners so that rather than getting what we deserve in hell, we can get what we don't deserve, which is eternity in heaven. And that's the motive, right? You simply care about them as human beings. I've said that to more people than I can remember over the years, and you know what I've learned is that when someone knows you genuinely care about them, that they are not some spiritual notch on your belt, that you can speak honestly about all kinds of difficult topics with them and they won't feel threatened or attacked, right? They will listen because they know you care. And that care for their soul can be established in minutes if it's sincere. And more often than not, they will be thankful that you took the time to share with them these important and eternal truths. And so further, as we proclaim this doctrine, it must be approached Christologically, right? We cannot separate this doctrine from the doctrine of Christ without doing great harm to it. And this can be illustrated, I believe, in two ways. Uh, first, we see that in the ministry of Christ, he had a lot to say about this topic, right? As many of you know, Christ talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Out of the roughly 1,900 words of Christ, one out of six, 15%, uh, are on this topic. One out of six words that came out of his mouth was reflecting this doctrine. And this fact places the, the doctrine of hell in a category that is unavoidably dominical. And uh, all that word means is that it's directly related to the lordship of Christ. Um, the doctrine of hell has been learned primarily from the lips of Jesus. And so there is no person more responsible for laying out the foundations and details of this teaching than our Lord Jesus himself. He spoke of it more than anyone else in scripture, and he gave it more attention than many other important themes during his earthly ministry. So I would say he is our prime example, right? Secondly, this doctrine must be grounded in the reality of the cross. 
For some people, hell is marched out as the ultimate trump card right, that refutes the love and grace and mercy of the Christian God. Uh, but if you look at the cross, right, it is a place where the outpouring of God's wrath is placed upon the one person in the universe upon which it has no right to strike. Right? The incarnate and sinless Son of God, no punishment was ever less merited than Christ's. Hell, on the other hand, is actually God's perfect justice being carried out on those who have sinned against him. Right? And hell, in a sense, is the fairest doctrine in the whole world. Right? You get exactly what you want, you get exactly what you deserve, and you're paid exactly what you earned. Right? The wages of sin is death. It is absolutely fair and just. Heaven, on the other hand, is actually the most unfair doctrine in the world when you think about it. Right? The fact that I, a sinner deserving of condemnation, get heaven and all its glories forever and ever and ever because the one who never sinned took upon himself my condemnation, that is what we call amazing grace. Right? And so this doctrine gets abused, distorted, and misunderstood when we lose sight of the cross of Christ. And we must also keep in mind that if someone wants to take issue with this doctrine, that their argument is not really with the preacher, assuming that they are striving to speak with grace and truth, but with the creator and savior of the world. Right? We must be careful that we do not hate this doctrine or rebel against it, but rather we should seek, insofar as we are able, Right, to come to the point where we acknowledge that the eternal punishment is good and right because in God there is no unrighteousness at all. And finally, since Christ came not to condemn the world, but to save the world, right, we must dismiss any idea that speaking honestly of hell is a form of condemnation. Right? It, is, it is not. To warn someone that an eternity of torment awaits them if they do not turn from their sin and trust in Christ is actually the most loving thing we can do for a fellow human being. We are not condemning them. We are imploring them to see their danger, their condition, and to partake of the rescue and the remedy which is offered alone in Christ. Christ came so that through him the world might be saved and saved from everlasting punishment for our sins. And so the motive behind our Communicating this doctrine to anyone should be so that they might not ever have to experience the reality of it themselves. It is ultimately motivated by love for God, love for neighbor, and by the gratitude that we have been saved from eternal torments and terrors in hell. Christ bore that incredible burden on our behalf, and we want to extend that same gracious gift of salvation to others. And as we do, our world will be changed for the better, one heart at a time, until the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of grace that you have given to us in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that the price of hell has been paid on our behalf, that Jesus bled and died for our pardon. Help us to live in light of this truth. Lord, please seal all that was from you and your spirit to our heart. 
Plant it deep in us and bring forth an abundant harvest in our lives by the work of your Spirit. Lord, help your church to be a city on a hill. Help us to be salt and light. Help us to advance your kingdom, to boldly and humbly proclaim your truth to those around us. May our joy and gratitude for what has been done for us in Christ compel us to speak and to sing of all that you have done for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.